Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to the New Books and Indian Religions podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkron, and today I have the distinct pleasure of having a conversation with Dr. Ian Witcher, who is full professor at the Department of Religion at the University of Manitoba. Um, Dr. Witcher is author of a number of works, um, probably one of his most popular and seminal to the field is The Integrity of the Yoga Darshana, a reconsideration of classical yoga. Um, um, Sunni Press, um, uh, the last reprint was in 2001. Um, Ian, it's great to have you on the podcast to talk about some ideas. Yeah, it's so nice to, uh, to connect in this way with you, Raj. It certainly is. And um, while the vast majority of these podcasts are geared towards probing a particular monograph reflected volume, we have had in the past um, uh, podcasts from scholars such as yourself that are conversations which give us a bit more range of motion. And I think based on your interests and your experience and your perspectives, um, scholarly and beyond, that would be a great use of our time together. So perhaps you can tell us a little bit about how you got into this, this field of study. Right. Well, I, um, I was attending Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario, and uh, I was enrolled in courses on political science, um, which uh, I, did, I wasn't finding very interesting. And I was more attracted to other things on campus. But it, um, so eventually it kind of caught up with me and I realized that uh, I think I'm going to take a break from university. So I quit. And very soon after, I started meeting just a couple of people in Kingston. And before you knew it, I was uh, practicing transcendental meditation. That was the go-to kind of thing. Um, this is in the uh, in the late seventies, actually. So Maharishi Mashyogi was still on the scene. In fact, I think at one point he actually came to Kingston and did a retreat. But I started practicing TM, and I started reading literature pertaining to India and Indian philosophy. And also uh, Maharshi had done a commentary on the Bhagavad Gita. So I, I was reading that. And then I was starting to feel that it, it was as if my buddhi started to awaken. <laughs> and it was very, very powerful because before it was kind of holding back obviously it wasn't very attracted to what was going on in the in 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 the world for me so um i i enrolled 
in um, after six months of being out of university, I enrolled in a course uh, in the Department of Religious Studies at Queens. Um, there was a professor there named Clifford Hospital, who uh, who was a really good, really good soul, really good scholar, and uh, we connected. Uh, there were some other teachers there who I connected with. I, I took a course in mysticism. That was the first course I took. And then as I got into that course, I became more and more attracted to studying uh, India and the religious and philosophical thought of India. So it sort of took off from there. So I ended up doing an honors degree there, uh, maintained my practice of meditation throughout. And um, then eventually, um, after getting an honors degree, um, spent some time um, outside of university doing some work and so on and so forth, paying off student loan. Um, I met uh, my wife-to-be, Rose, at Queens, and then eventually we moved to Ottawa and started working there. And I then met a teacher from India who was traveling through Canada, who was quite a renowned guru figure, certainly uh, in Canada. He was known mostly by Canadians. His name was Swami Sham. And Swami Sham um, resided in the Kulu Valley in Himachal Pradesh. But he was on one of these tours of Canada at the time, and I met him in Montreal, actually, through one of his MA students, who I had connected with just previously to that. So this is in 1981. So I was uh, quite, quite inspired by Swami Sham, and uh, then eventually in 1983 went over to India and spent some time in his ashram. And... Uh, uh, his approach was very uh, yoga Vedanta, you know, that combination. Um, and um, Advaita, but in a, a reinterpretation of Advaita that, that was all about uh, transforming the uh, vehicle rather than just transcending, also transforming the vehicle of the mind and body. And so in that sense, it was somewhat tantric without being tantric, if you know what I mean. And he was a very profound uh, speaker, a great communicator. His English was fantastic. We were all very lucky. And there were about 150 or so Canadian, mostly Canadian, some Europeans, and some, some from uh, India who would come be on his ashram. Many of them were living there. So after a while there, I felt that I'd had my fill for that time. And then um, I also, on that trip, though, I should mention, on my way to India, um, I had a very profound experience with Jay Krishnamurti, who was giving a talk in Switzerland. Now, now that I mentioned Krishnamurti, I actually did a BA thesis on him at Queen's. I was able to do that. So Krishnamurti was someone who just came into my life 
Uh, and I ended up doing a BA thesis on him because at Queens, you were asked to do a thesis in your honors degree. And then I thought, oh, I really want to meet this guy. And it so happened that he was giving um, a set of talks in Sonnen, Switzerland, which he did every year. And uh, my wife and I went through there. Um, we had relatives in Switzerland. So we went through and, and I... I heard some of his talks and actually met him after a talk um, walking along um, a little mountain path that he would do between Gestad and Sonnen. So after one of his talks, I ran after him and just introduced myself. And then we just walked together for um, a little while and he took my hand and, and I had a very powerful kind of uh, I don't know if I call it awakening, but it was just a sense of clarity that over, came over me just through that. Um, when he looked into my eyes and took my hand, and then I just said goodbye, and that was it. He passed away about three years later, by the way, in 1986, Krishnamurti. So Krishnamurti was a very powerful influence, and I really took to his writings. And of course, what his writings do is they, they create a, a real sense of a tension between tradition and uh, spiritual awareness. Because Krishnamurti was saying, don't trust tradition, don't trust the guru, don't, don't uh, follow another. And at the same time, he obviously felt he had something to say or he wouldn't be saying it. But his, his whole approach was in some ways quite revolutionary where he wanted to throw back onto the, his listeners the opportunity and in, from his perspective, the necessity to awaken in the way he was talking, what he was, what he was saying. He wanted people to actually have this tacit recognition in the moment. It was a very direct approach, which in many ways was ahead of its time, I think, for a lot of, of people. Um, a kind of what you might call a direct path to spiritual awakening through understanding the, the movement of one's own mind in the present moment. So it was very yogic at the same time, which um, I just found that um, I just took to it. And the more I got into the studies after all this, through Swami Shaun. Swami Shaun was very uh, supportive of me doing, doing work in university because he felt that that would bring, help to bring a credibility to being able to articulate Patanjali and live it for many educated people. You know, maybe if the idea being that certainly within tradition, study was a major part of yoga. Swadhyaya, self-study, study, applying the mind, um, harnessing the mind, using the mind in, a, in an aklished manner, a helpful manner, in a non-afflicted manner, in a manner that opens the mind up rather than uh, just merely throws more layers of knowledge. It's uh, opening the mind up to something that is present within it. I'll put it that way. And so uh, just as I'm talking to you now, I'm beginning to see that um, the Krishnamurti approach was very direct, but it was also in many ways aligned with Patanjali's wonderful classical teaching 
uh, the way he defines yoga as yoga chitta vritti nirodaha is the it's a a kind of cessation of the mind and its functioning whereby our the true nature of our of ourself is um, not known and therefore there has to be this kind of cessation of this veiling over our true nature and that that became my main study for the next 10-15 years in my own meditation and I thank Swami Sham for actually being very in, inspirational and Swami Sham's approach was realize it for yourself and apply your mind study awaken articulate for others what this this meaning is um, for Chittavriti Niroda because it's as if the whole tradition was in those four Sanskrit words <laughs> Chitta Vritti Niroda, um, and which we can we could talk a little bit more about later, because I think that that more folks need to know the tremendous teaching that's been going on long time ago in Sankhya and in yoga, in the classical yoga tradition, about being educated into what our mind really is, what the chitta really is. And um uh, it seems to me that without using this kind of terminology, this is exactly what Krishnamurti was doing in his approach, although he was much more direct. He didn't want to give out a series of practices because he didn't feel you, can, you can't practice awareness. You can only be aware. And there's a, 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 a tension there um, in spiritual discipline between practice and and awakening so in other words um that became a really important aspect i was trying to deal with in my own life right and um as tedious at times as it can be to really get into the nitty-gritty of being a scholar I began to realize that what I was picking away at was just the kind of joining the dots I needed to join to make sense of this, my own um, calling, as it were, both as a scholar and practitioner. And I saw at the end of the day, there's absolutely no division between them. We, we, we create these, these um, dualities. Um, whatever you do in life, um, it can simply be an activity of your own being. So there need not be a conflict. Although, as you know, I'm sure, Raj, there is a tremendous amount of discipline needed in order to, for example, write a PhD dissertation on some topic that we're inspired to do, and knowing the literature and relating to it critically. However, at the end of the day, I'm grateful for having followed through on all this scholarship and continued it and have since as a career, but all along as the practitioner, as the, the meditator, um, being able to um, appreciate the tradition, especially within Hinduism, because that's more that I know, Hinduism rather than Buddhism, although the two are, are very closely aligned in many ways. Um, and so I went on and did an MA at Concordia. 
uh, with um, a professor named David Miller, who um, had done work on in Hinduism. And then eventually I went on and did a PhD at Cambridge with um, Dr. Julius Lipner, who was um, a fantastic person to do this kind of work on. And he encouraged me to do Patanjali. I dabbled in Ramanuja Shankara, and then I began to realize that it's really Patanjali that I wanted to do, to do uh, a dissertation on. So I ended up uh, doing some work at Cambridge after the dissertation. This would be uh, in 1990. After 1992, I ended up getting some teaching though at U of A, University of Alberta. And my wife was doing a dissertation in education there. So for about three years, I taught there. And then I went back to Cambridge and was um, assigned a role um, to help to administer a research institute, which had a five-year um, tenure to it. And I did that with Julius Lipner. And we ended up doing conferences at Cambridge on yoga, a lot um, on the Hindu tradition. And um, I managed to do lots of publishing and writing and research there. And then eventually I came back to Canada uh, in 2000 to U of M and got Klaus Klostermeyer's old position where Professor Klostermeyer had been for many years. So that's a little background. Uh. <laughs> it's um, always about the scenic route and in, in sharing your experiences you've actually preempted and addressed um, uh, a number of my subsequent questions which is uh, both enjoyable and an efficient way to do it um, but one <laughs> one one point that I would like to resurface that I feel is important is the tension or perhaps perceived tension between uh, the scholarly and the spiritual mode of inquiry or experience um, 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 the extent to which uh, arguably uh, um, critical thinking geared at empirical reality through the scientific method is a different mode of experience versus introspection into being itself and the states of consciousness and experiences that avail themselves that are perhaps um, um, innately uh, subjective and beyond the, the mode of empirical inquiry, this isn't, uh, I'm not taking a position, I'm raising this as a as sort of a common, a common uh, tension that is, is faced, uh, uh, certainly in particular among scholars who may not be practitioners and practitioners who may not be interested in scholarship. And so I'd love for you to say a little more about this from your perspective. Yes. Um, well, having, really gotten into this um, through an inner kind of awakening. I, I mean, something just said, it's time to wake up. And then I was, I was drawn to, to the study more. Um, the tension, I, I think, um, uh, is very real in, in people who, who got into meditation maybe you started following a teacher, um, whether from India or not. And why bother to go to university 
when you can get the the real deal through a teacher, right? And I think a lot of people um, um, naively let go of their connections to further education in a formal way, um, thinking that um, the pursuit or the search for self-realization or spiritual liberation was the only thing to do. And what I, the tension that that brought up in me was, yes, that was my, my main urge, mamukshatwa, you know, uh, but at the same time, it could include, it could include study, it could include um, analysis, it could include a critical investigation of literature, because what I began to see was I'm really studying the history of consciousness, of, of, of how things unfold, how, and you get the opportunity to understand and appreciate the various conditions through which people have, whether they're, they're spiritual teachers in India at whatever time, um, the various conditions that people are working through, and then the claim towards self-realization, for example, um, spiritual liberation, moksha, for example, in India, one of the, one of the great uh, aims of life. Purusharthas, um, this sense that spiritual liberation, so the question was, what is enlightenment? I mean, this is the question that came, what is enlightenment? And the more I got into it, the more I began to see that tension started to dissolve because it became more and more an inclusive investigation into everything, a curiosity about everything in life. And, um, uh, so it became um, not so much uh, some system that was in opposition to when I sat down to meditate, but rather through meditation, through um, allowing myself to, to sink into a, for lack of a better expression, deeper, deeper space within, by allowing that to happen, um, the tension between being a scholar or and a meditator just it didn't make any sense. It it just it became a creative tension rather than a an uh, oppositional tension, and so um, creativity then um, be how to be creative with what one's studying. In other words, as a meditator from within, you are motivated to do a certain study, but then you begin to realize that you're including yourself in this study, that the Patanjali that Witcher was studying was really Patanjali plus Witcher. <laughs> but that's okay, because that's what I think Patanjali would want. I mean, uh, you see, uh, we have to include ourselves. And, um, you know, in some ways, um, that's what it became. And so the tensions started to dissolve. And through my own experiential understanding, I was able to be very curious about all kinds of things. 
and um, uh, ecstatically curious, actually. Ecstatically curious. There was nothing so much holding me down. And I, I'm grateful for having discovered religious studies because the whole gamut of uh, history is there, philosophy is there, um, sociological dynamics, psychology is there. So it all came together for me in um, uh, simply, when I look at these four Sanskrit words, yogas chitta vritti niroda, it's all there. <laughs> There's nothing that I do not see. I cannot see anything that that does not include in life, <laughs> including our so, human relationships and, and so on. It's a fascinating perspective. Uh, it seems to me that the, the tension uh, in my personal perspective and experience, particularly at the academy, is very much alive and well, manifest in conversations, uh, manifest in um, uh, education of undergraduate students, uh, the kinds of education they're looking for and receiving, kinds that are made available to them or even possible at the academy. So it's, it's very much attention at the same time, um, in my view, uh, ultimately scholarship and spirituality uh, mutually complement and inform each other in a certain way. One thing that comes to mind as I hear you speak is that uh, it's clear to me that you are a, a seeker first uh, who is also a scholar, such that scholarship is the tool and the seeking is the hand. And from that perspective, arguably, it, one can, from a spiritual perspective, one can flow into the space of whatever other paradigm one is using. But for one who is situated in the universe, such that scholarship is how they wake up and go to bed, and that intellectual computational mind is the hand, then it becomes difficult to 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 integrate the two from that perspective, perhaps. Mm -hmm. But onto mm -hmm. more interesting things. Um, 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 what is it? If you could probably crudely generalize or or at least a point to indicate, what is it that you, 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 you hope to accomplish in your scholarly campaign? What, what is it that you're trying to show or change or do? And, and just to give you a sense, um, what I'll ask next is sort of your thought on, on yoga and, and, and what you think uh, the, the yoga world needs today. And so you can kind of parse that out however you'd like. Yeah, well, yeah. Um, I think it'd be great to, um, from now, for example, I'm doing these, these remote classes, right? And uh, there's one on Indian philosophy. Um, I do intro to Hinduism. Guru Disciple is a, another course I do. Um, and then some advanced studies in Hinduism where I bring up themes, often pertaining to spiritual liberation and, and the question of enlightenment, as it were, spiritual liberation, what does it mean? And the relationship between consciousness and the, the body-mind-self. And uh, so the relevance of all this stuff, you know, bringing out the relevance of uh, just, for example, a teaching on yoga. I mean, Patanjali basically said, all right, yoga is and then when, when that cessation 
of mistaken identity takes place, then the, the self abides in its true nature, true form. And then he took the rest of the, of the Yoga Sutras to basically uh, flesh out what those, those two uh, sutras mean and the implications and what goes on in the process of that Niroda, because Niroda is both a process and it's also a, a resolution. It's a process of bringing about clarity, and yet it is then a resolution of any tensions uh, from within. And the resolution of those tensions um, is an ongoing uh, kind of process in the, in the sense that you can awaken to the space of liberation within, but then the body-mind needs to be aligned with that, you see? And uh, so that the, it's a really a question then of recognizing something from deeply within and allowing that to almost colonize the body-mind, you know, including our thoughts, feelings, emotions, sensations, and certainly into our behavior. And living in a much more non-afflicted mode of activity. And it seems to me that the, the teaching in yoga, uh, classically, everyone likes the word yoga, you know, in a sense, um, there's, there can be a yoga for so many things. But for me, what I'd like to do is bring out this sense of a yoga of the whole, rather than a this yoga or a that yoga, a yoga of the whole, and that is realizing our, our true nature as, as it were, one with the whole, you know, a yoga of the whole that includes the, the knowledge component of nyan, it includes the, the action component of karma, it includes the, the heart component, the, the, the bhakti, devo loving devotion, uh, it's all part of our of our nature as human beings. These um, the dynamic of of knowledge, love. We are emotional beings. We're physical beings. We're sexual beings, and so on and so forth. So articulating the integrity, as I said in my first book, the real integrity of the yoga darshana is that it finally allows us to embody our true form. Whereas, as you know, in a lot of the literature and a lot of the interpretation, it was about severing consciousness from associating with form. And what I saw was there's a, there's a it's very tempting, but there, it's a mistake to simply conflate our prakriti, nature, the universe, the world, manifestation with spiritual ignorance. That that is a, a profound mistake to simply conflate embodiment with having to do more with the nature of spiritual ignorance than with a almost a kind of deeply rooted intention springing from consciousness itself to embody more of itself. And um, that is what I feel Patanjali opens one into without going into all the, the labels of what that 
of what that freedom is. He opens one into the freedom and lets the experience speak for itself. So I would like I would like to to be able to bring the integrity of this great this great scripture out more. And it's all there. Just it has been so much labeled dualistic a dualistic system. And um, I think at at a great expense because. Um, it is a holistic system. So I would call it a yoga of the whole, that the Chittavriti Niroda, the yoga is a yoga of the whole. The totality of consciousness and existence is all there. And it just need, we just need to get it right, you know? Oh, what would you say, Ian, to one who would say, hey, you know, I took a really interesting intro Hinduism course, so I watched his talk, and I remember that yoga is a darshana that's related to Sankhya and this idea that Purusha and Prakriti, you know, say an interlocutor said to you, well, wait a minute, isn't this about, uh, isn't yoga actually etymologically related to the idea of separating because of this Sankhya idea of, well, uh, um, Purusha and Prakriti need to become unalloyed and therein lies freedom. And, and, and if that's the case, then, then what do you mean? What would you say to that? Yeah, well, there, there is a, there is the need for discernment. So in a sense, discernment separates our, our um, profound habit in human consciousness of confusing ourselves for um, a kind of form identity at the expense of realizing our essential identity. And so there is the need then to separate Right, or uh, the awareness from that confusion, from that mistaking ourselves for that. So there's an epistemic cleaning up, as it were. And so I would say the separation is is not a metaphysical separation so much as a um, uh, an ep- an epistemological um, uh, awareness that starts coming through. So, um, in other words, the V-yoga, yoga V-yoga, Boja Raja was famous for citing that um, in his commentary. Um, The separation is a necessary part of the process. In other words, even Aurobindo said that Purusha must be separated from its confusion with misidentifying itself with Prakriti, and then Purusha is liberated and also Prakriti is liberated. We liberate Prakriti through yoga. Even Sankhya says that. The, the, the Sankhya system says at the end of the day, it, it isn't Purusha that's liberated, it is Prakriti that is liberated. So we're liberating the body-mind from trying to be the self. <laughs> we're liberating the, the sense of self um, as being a... Um, a product of the scene, using Patanjali's language, we're separating our true awareness from all that confusion or mistaken identity. So there is that need to separate. And then, and then there is awareness doing its thing. Then there is awareness doing its thing. And that awareness is a power of consciousness, a chitti shakti, you know. So let's, um, I typically keep 
um, on the level at sort of the naive interlocutor. But I just want to dive down. I can't resist diving down into this 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 idea that you present that uh, uh, through uh, liberation, uh, Purusha is liberated and Prakriti or material nature is also liberated. And in particular, what you just said about uh, liberating uh, the mind from um, being or wanting to be the self. Can you say a bit more about that? Yeah. So it isn't the true nature of the mind So uh, to be the self. That is why we suffer. So the chitta, going back to the, the terminology in the yoga philosophy, the chitta is really a... Um, it's an umbrella term, which includes our buddhi, our intel- intellect, intelligence factor. It includes our uh, ordinary sense of self, ahamkara, and it includes the manas, uh, through which our senses function. So the chitta is this, the, the mode through which consciousness uh, um, functions. So it's the functioning of consciousness. And that chitta then, is um, is not the essence of consciousness by any means, but it is it is how consciousness functions, and it uh, through which form is experienced, form, phenomena, and so on. Subject object kind of relationship is 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 enabled to be part of our experiential world. Now, the problem is that consciousness insofar as it has taken a body-mind, whether it's Raj or Ian, then starts to exclusively identify with itself as form, such as I was born uh, and so on. At a certain time, my name is Ian, uh, and all the conditioning. So the sense of self takes on all these limitations all these conditions, our form identity. And it's important to qualify that that's all right to have form identity, but to be exclusively identified with form sets us up for um, always, um, as it were, being dissatisfied because what we're truly seeking is we're truly seeking an innate sense of happiness of, of our being, which is never outside of ourself. So the problem with chitta is that the activity of being a self is mistaken for our true self. And that is usually called ego consciousness. Um, and so the ahamkara then has been often reduced to a sense of a separate self that functions through the chitta. In other words, we mistake an activity of consciousness, a functioning of consciousness, as being an entity that I call I. And that, that chitta is not meant to carry an entity called I. <laughs> and therefore, uh, that entity called I, not being our true nature, uh, suffers because of its lack of knowing its true nature. And that is what it seeks. The whole path of seeking is to seek that intrinsic state of being, which is happiness itself, which is pure conscious being. 
And the only way to do that is to um, rest in that being. It's not something you can attain. So the chitta is given this role whereby it's stuck with a sense of self functioning as it were, mistaking itself as an entity, whereas it is really an activity. So that mind really gets sick and tired of trying to be the self. In fact, its true nature is pure sattva. The true nature of the chitta is a pure sattva in the form of buddhi. And that is what we need to reawaken to through yoga. So one of the greatest teachings of Patanjali is to reawaken our true buddhi, our true intelligence, for lack of a better word, our true intellect, which enables us to sink into our true being through that process and realize that we always were that being. So we're liberating the chitta from being the self. And I think going back to Patanjali's terminology, we are, are no longer mistaking our self for being of the nature of what we can see, because that which is chitta can be seen by awareness. It's fascinating. Our personality and is, is fine. It's all fine. The problem is often we throw the baby out with the bathwater and say, oh, there must be the cessation of that chitta, like an ontological cessation, as if vrittis can't function in the awakened state. Whereas vrittis can function, but one is no longer mistaking oneself for the nature and form of thought, feeling, emotion, uh, perception, and so on. So you liberate all of that from this ignorance of our true nature. And uh, that liberates Prakriti to flow in her true being. And that has all kinds of implications for today. I, I think I'm, I can get really excited about that, Raj. Uh, it touches on all kinds of issues that need to be liberated. You know, we need to liberate the feminine. We need to liberate the masculine. <laughs> we need to, to uh, liberate the, our, um, our Mother Earth from all this... Um, the ecological hardships she's been um, that have been thrust upon her. It's all there as part of Prakriti. And um, so I think yoga has this um, really profound uh, capacity to touch on all these subjects and people will do that. It will be an aha moment for them to realize this. It's by realizing this from within that there's really nothing without that is separate from what one is realizing within. And, and therefore, one becomes super connected. Uh, the experiential realm doesn't blind us from our true selves. It becomes a mode through which um, uh, the activity of awakening can play itself out rather than merely the activity of a lack of awakening in life. That uh, that's fascinating, and given the time, I think that's the perfect place to stop. Um, there's there's um, 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 uh, rather than descend into the minutia, <laughs> let's leave the audience. <laughs> let's leave the audience with this expansive idea about mistaking um, becoming for being. Um, thank you very much for appearing on the podcast and chatting with me today. 
Well, you're welcome. I'm, I really enjoyed it. And uh, I think doing these sorts of things, Raj, is a real service to others. And, uh, you know, it uh, seems to be part and parcel of the times that podcasts are, uh, are good. It's all very, very good. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> keeps me out of trouble, I suppose, or at least from collecting dust. Uh, and I joke that um, amped up production of podcasts in 2020 is sort of uh, my contribution to the war effort because people need content. They're stuck at home. And this, <laughs> this is something I can help with at least. Um, uh, so we'll have to have you back. I think there's so much in what you said that, that could well occupy another podcast. We'll have you back if you're up for it. Yeah, it's a little glimpse into, into yeah, absolutely. more things. We'll have you back. Um, for those of you listening, <laughs> uh, you've just heard uh, part one of a conversation with Dr. Ian Witcher, who is a professor at the Department of Religion uh, at the University of Manitoba in this country called Canada, for those of you who may not realize. <laughs> um, um, until next time, uh, stay safe. Uh, stay sane, keep reading, keep listening, and keep contemplating the relationship between being and becoming. <laughs>